You're listening to the seven-part sermon series, Burning Questions, taught by Pastor Ryan Couch at Calvary Chapel of Crook County. Over our seven-part series, we'll be providing biblical answers to your most asked questions. Let's join Pastor Ryan now. But I think one of the things in relationship to this question is that we need to understand the source of evil and illness in this world. We've got to take it back to its source. And the source of it is sin. We've got to recognize that God created this world and God created people to live in perfection, in harmony. He created us in His image. He created this world free from sin, free from illness, free from death, free from trials and difficulties. And so we've got to understand that all of these illnesses and sicknesses and the suffering that we see today is a result of sin. We live in a fallen world. If, if you don't know that, then you're not paying attention. But we, we live in a fallen world that is yet to be redeemed. But the Bible tells us that not only are we going to be redeemed as people, but this world, the physical world, will be redeemed as well. In fact, Romans tells us that the creation is crying out for redemption. It's crying out to be brought back into that place that it was intended to be. And so everything in your life that seems kind of out of kilter and doesn't fit and why is this happening and, and man, this is really difficult, it's because we live in a fallen world that's yet to be transformed by God. Therefore, we're subject to the repercussions of living in a sinful environment that is filled with disease, illness, suffering, and difficulty. It's simply the result of man's rebellion toward God and a byproduct of this evil world we live in. And so we, we need to understand that. We need to understand that we live in a fallen world. We need to get back to the source of evil. It's sin. Second thing that we need to, to understand, something that we need to concede in our minds, maybe you need to write this down. This is a, this is a complicated thing. But you need to understand that you don't know everything. That you can't figure God out. We talked about that at the beginning. We aren't all knowing and therefore our perspective about our suffering and difficulties is limited. You guys understand that? That your perspective about these things is limited. You say there can't possibly be any good in this and yet you've got to understand that your perspective is very limited, like a child. A child doesn't understand why they can't have dessert before dinner. In their little minds, they don't understand that. Their perspective is very limited. They don't understand why you make them go to bed at 8 o'clock. Why? Why can't I stay up like you? They don't know that they need more sleep. They don't think about the fact that the next morning, they are just dragging and they can't accomplish anything. But you have a bigger perspective. You have a bigger perspective as to why they can't go and play out in the street or why they can't spend the night at a stranger's house. On and on. You understand these things. They don't. And the same is true with the Lord. Just because we cannot fathom any good reason for suffering doesn't mean there aren't any. Tim Keller in his book called The Reason for God, which I highly recommend... And I think we're going to bring some in uh, just to have alongside this series. But it's a book called The Reason 
for God. Tim Keller, he's a pastor in New York, he said this, If you have a God, listen, it's, he's a little bit, he's, a little, he's intelligent, but listen. If you have a God great and transcendent or above everything, if you have a God great and transcendent enough to be mad at because he hasn't stopped evil and suffering in the world, then you have, at the same moment, a God great and transcendent enough to have good reasons for allowing it to continue even though you can't understand why. Often after a tragedy, like the recent earthquake in Burma, 9-11, the 2004 tsunami in Asia, or Hurricane Katrina, people will ask questions like, where was God? You guys heard those questions? Where was God in 9-11? Where was God in Hurricane Katrina? And then you have, in my opinion, the, you know, just... People that make us look really bad that like blame all these things on God and I really, that really bugs me or blame it on you know the homosexuals in New Orleans. That's why there was a hurricane there. It's like, wow, you know, thank you very much for absolutely ruining our testimony. But people ask those kinds of things. Where was God in that? Skeptics will assert, if God is good, if, or, excuse me, if God is God, he's not good. If God is good, he's not God. For in their minds, you can't have it both ways. If God is God, he's not good. If God is good, then he's not God. Can't have it both ways. Because if God is powerful and can stop this stuff from happening, and he doesn't, then he's not good in their minds. Or if he's good, but he's not powerful enough to stop it, then he's not God. And when you are posed with that Catch-22, it's kind of tough, isn't it, when somebody says that? Hey, if God's powerful enough to stop Hurricane Katrina and he doesn't, then he's not good. And if God's so good, but he's not powerful enough to stop it, then he's not God. As Christians, people whose theology comes from the Bible, our theology is what we know about God. People have a theology, whether they know it or not. Oprah has theology. She gleans all of it, I think, from Eckhart Tolle, or whatever his name is, who's written many, many books now and is probably the most popular spiritual thinker and speaker in the world today. But everybody has a theology. The guy you run into at the grocery store, your neighbor, your unbelieving father, mother, spouse, everybody has a theology. You have a theology. Even though you don't consider yourself a theologian, you have a theology. You have an understanding about God. And as Christians, you guys, it's got to come from the Bible. We know, because our theology comes from the Bible, that God is both powerful and loving. He's omnipotent and He's gracious. And that He's far beyond our ability to comprehend. Therefore, it is futile for us to attempt to reconcile His power with His love. We can't separate the two like many skeptics will do. They, they blend together perfectly. But if God truly loves us, and He's powerful enough to intervene, why doesn't He do something about suffering and evil? That's the bottom line, and that's what we want to talk about tonight. To answer that question, I think it's, it's pretty simple. It's that He did, and He does. God does intervene. God did come to our rescue. And so I want to look at four reasons why our suffering does not in any way diminish the love of God toward us. If you're a note taker, 
We're going to look at four things tonight, four reasons why our suffering, why our difficulty, why our illnesses do not in any way diminish the love of God toward us. First of all, he proved his love at the cross. There's no greater demonstration of the love of God than the cross. If you have your Bible, we're going to do something that we don't do ever, is we're going to flip around a little bit. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. Bible flipping is a pet peeve of mine when pastors have you like all over the place. You know, I, I'm fairly familiar with the Bible, but man, when you're flipping all over, you can't follow the guy. I, and, and here's what sealed the deal for me. It was about seven or eight years ago, I was an assistant pastor at Calvary Chapel, Redmond, and, and I was sitting in the back, and there was this old gentleman back there, and the pastor that day was doing a little bit of flipping, and the guy, he, he was an older man, and he didn't know the Bible at all, and finally he just shut his Bible, and he said, I can't follow this, I don't know where these books are. And, and I just thought, you know what? We've got to remember that not everybody knows where every book of the Bible is, and, and so anyway. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so God demonstrates his own love for us, and that while we were still sinners, or without strength, completely hopeless and lost, we didn't have our act together. He didn't wait for us to, to figure it out. It was while we were yet sinners, he died for us. It's the greatest demonstration of love. And so when we think about, well, if God really loves me, why does he allow suffering and trials and illnesses into my life? Well, we need to go back to the cross, the greatest demonstration of his love. Flip over just a few chapters to Romans chapter 8, verse 32. We'll start in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? Talking about the fact that nothing can separate us from the love of God? What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? It's a great question. It's a a question that really automatically we answer nothing and no one. And he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. In other words, he gave us his son. He was willing to give his son as a substitute for our sins. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? In other words, our greatest need was forgiveness. And God met our greatest need with the greatest sacrifice, his own son. Therefore, we needn't doubt that God will meet our every need. If he met our greatest need with his greatest sacrifice, then we know he has our best interests in mind. Who can be against us if God is for us? then we know that every other need will be met by God. And He, you guys, as the Lord of our life, determines what our needs are. And He gets to decide how He'll meet those needs. He met our greatest need, He'll meet the others as well. He has your best interest in mind. See, that is foundational in answering this question. If you don't believe that God has your best interest in mind, you will never trust Him. It's just like an employer. If you, don't, if you don't trust your employer, then you're always going to question why he's asking you to work overtime. You're always going to question if you're really going to get that raise. 
You're always going to question if he's cheating you out of something. But if you trust your employer and you know that he has your best interests in mind, then you don't mind working overtime. You know that he'll be fair with you and that if he's having a good year, then he's going to share the profits with you. And you trust him or her. And see, you've got to come to this place in your walk with the Lord that you understand he has your best interests in mind. And you needn't go any further than the cross to establish that and to prove that to yourself. If he was willing to meet your greatest need by sacrificing himself on the cross, why would we ever doubt his love when we have sickness or trials or difficulties in our life? This is a great verse. If he didn't spare his son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely, graciously, lovingly give us all things? Okay. He proved his love at the cross. A second reason why our suffering does not in any way diminish the love of God toward us is that he loves us too much to leave us the way we are. See, he loves us way too much to leave us the way we are. And suffering, you guys, is the tool that God uses to bring maturity into our lives. And so God looks at you and he says, you know what? I could just ignore you. I could just say, forget you. I could say, hey, just stay the way you are. Kind of like you do with people that you don't like. You know, guy in the neighborhood or somebody you you work with, and they've got all these personality flaws, and you just think, you know what? I don't have the time, the concern to try to fix this person. But God loves you way too much to leave you the way you are. And so he allows suffering into your life to bring maturity into your life. Turn with me to James chapter 1. It's further back in your Bibles. It's, if you get to Revelation, you went too far. It's right after Hebrews. James chapter 1. It's a famous passage about trials. My brethren, count it, consider it, add it together, do the math, come to a right conclusion. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials. That sounds ridiculous to the ear of one who doesn't know our God. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials. How? Why? Am I supposed to count it joy that my house just burnt down or that my child just died? Am I supposed to count it joy that I just found out I was just diagnosed with a terminal illness? Do I rejoice in that? Of course not. We don't rejoice in the trial itself, that would be insensitive. It would be fatalistic. We rejoice in what God will bring out of it. As Romans 8.28 tells us, that all things work together for the good to those that love God and are called according to His purpose. And so we don't rejoice in the trial itself, but we rejoice in what God will bring out of it. And what James tells us here is that we know, verse 3, that the testing of our faith produces patience or endurance. And so we count it joy because it it brings endurance into our life. Like an athlete that is trained, that maybe starts out running a half mile, and then a mile, and then five, and then ten, and, and pretty soon they can run 30, 40, 50 miles at a time. But they didn't start out that way. Professional athletes never started out being able to hit a 95 mile an hour fastball or being able to 
endure the, the beating of an NFL game or being able to handle the physical exertion of running up and down the court in, in the NBA or any athletic endeavor. When you watch them, there are years of practice and of developing endurance. And when you look, you guys, at a mature believer, there are years of dealing with trials and struggles and difficulties that came their way. And it brought maturity into their life. Because as he goes on to say, they let patience have its perfect work in them. And so that endurance was working itself out in them that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. What is this talking about? Maturity. This, this word perfect, it means maturity. And so God allows trials to come into our life and we can find joy in them and not doubt God's love for us because we know that it is making us into the people that he has called us to be. See, we pray for things, don't we? God, help me to be humble. Well, God doesn't just give you humility. Bible says humble yourself, but we'll use that as an example. Lord, make me humble. Lord, help me to love people. Lord, help me to be dependent upon you. I don't want to depend upon my flesh. I don't want to depend upon my abilities. I want to depend upon you. God, give me a heart for ministry. God, give me compassion for people. When we pray these things, we we don't often remember maybe the next day or a week later or a year later when the trial comes and it produces humility in our life. It gives us a heart for others. It develops compassion within us. See, apart from that, it wouldn't have. We, we wouldn't have those things. And so when you pray for those characteristics, know that the way in which God will produce that in your life is through trials and suffering and hardships, difficulties. Because he wants to bring maturity into our lives. And the way that will happen is through difficulty. Failure is our greatest teacher. Suffering is is the tool in which God brings maturity into our lives. A third reason why our suffering does not in any way diminish the love of God toward us is that he loves others and desires to bring comfort to them through us. God allows us to suffer so that we can comfort those who are suffering. Turn with me back to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 3. This third reason why suffering does not in any way diminish the love of God toward us is that he loves others and desires to bring comfort to them through us. Listen to what Paul says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulations that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation or our comfort also abounds through Christ. Now if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation, which is effective for enduring the same sufferings which we also suffer. Or if we are comforted, It is for your comfort and salvation. And our hope for you is steadfast, because we know that as you are partakers of the sufferings, so also you will partake of the comfort. Amazing verses. He loves others. God has other people in mind besides you. The world does not revolve around us. And when you gave your life to Jesus Christ, 
you became an others-minded person. Whether or not that has sunk in with you, and whether or not you've come to that place of maturity where you're thinking of others is really up to you. But when you signed on to be a Christian, the Bible says that you became a person that should put others ahead of yourself. That's what Jesus did. And so in our sufferings, you guys, we don't just think about ourselves. We don't throw a pity party. We don't say, oh God, how could you do this to me? This is horrible. We have to say, Lord, who is it that I'm going to be able to comfort? Because there's somebody else that has it more difficult than I do. There's somebody else who is struggling in this very same thing. And you've called me to comfort them. And so God, help me to know who that is. God, give me a heart for them. God, give me opportunities to comfort others, to bless others. It's absolutely radical way of thinking, isn't it? But you know what? It's not so radical. It's basic Christianity. But we've watered Christianity down to the point where that is radical because we're so stinking selfish and full of ourselves and it's pathetic and it's opposed to God. God allows us to suffer so that we can comfort those who are suffering. Jesus is able to comfort us because of what He endured. We don't have a high priest that can't sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all ways tempted as we are, and yet he never sinned, he never failed, he never, ever turned his back on God. And so we can say, Lord, comfort me, because you've been through this. He loves others, you guys. He loves you, but he loves others. And like you tell your kids, and we we need to start applying it, the world doesn't revolve around us. It's not all about us. And so he brings these things, he allows these things to come into our life so that we can comfort other people, so that we can bless other people. We pray, God, I want to be used by you. God, I want to be your servant. God, I want to bless people. God, I want to use my gifts. If you're not praying those things, you should be. And the Lord says, okay, I'm going to give you opportunities to minister. I'm going to give you opportunities to serve. I'm going to help you to be relatable to people. And here it is. This is how it'll happen. Oh, Lord, I I didn't mean it in that way. I just kind of want it by osmosis. I want to be able to relate to people, but I don't want to have to go through what they've gone through. It doesn't work that way. A fourth reason why our suffering does not in any way diminish the love of God toward us, you guys, is that He has eternity in mind. His love for us is eternal. His love for us is not a flash in the pan. It's not for a moment His love for us is eternal, and therefore He has eternity in mind. And in light of that, He allows us to suffer temporally, that is, in this life, to teach us eternal lessons. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, over just a couple chapters. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. Therefore, we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, our outward man is is just falling apart. It's going through trials. It's going through sickness and disease and illness. And the older you get, the more aware of that you become. But maybe even as young people, maybe you've had sickness and illness and trials and your body's just falling apart and you're well acquainted with that. Even as a young person, don't lose heart. Your outward man may be perishing, yet the inward man, your spirit, is being renewed day by day. For, listen, listen to how Paul describes this. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, 
If you guys later on, if you read about Paul's trials in chapter 11, to me they don't seem real light and they don't seem but for a moment. But that was the perspective Paul had. Paul was beaten. Paul was starved. He went days on end without sleep. He was stoned. He was ridiculed. He was mocked. He was abandoned by his friends. The very people that he was trying to help and to save are the very people that treated him like a dog. And yet he says, our light affliction, which is but for a moment, it's just here and it's gone. You've got to have that perspective, you guys. Whether your trials go on for 50 or 60 years, it's but for a moment compared to eternity. And it's light compared to the glory that he's working in you. It's but for a moment and it is working for us. Listen to that. Your trials are working for you. Do you see them that way? Are you, are you putting your trials to work for you so that they can bring profit into your life? That's what Paul says. Our trials, our difficulty, our suffering is working for us. And so you have a choice. Either put it to work and have it bring profit or complain about it, get bitter about it, be resentful toward God and have it be your ruin. They're working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And so Paul says, man, these temporary things, I'm not focused on them. I'm focused on the things that God is doing in me eternally as a result of these things. He wants to teach us eternal lessons. And in light of that, you guys... He will take from us anything temporally to teach us eternal lessons. He will take anything from you. Your health, your money, relationships, careers, goals, expectations. He'll take any of those things away from you to teach you eternal lessons. Because God loves you eternally, not just temporally. He's got a bigger picture in mind of eternity. And he's working in us a far more exceeding weight of glory. Four things that prove to us that our suffering does not in any way diminish the love of God toward us. A couple things in closing, you guys. Our suffering must drive us to Jesus. Tim Keller said this as well. Christianity alone among the world religions claims that God became uniquely and fully human in Jesus Christ and therefore knows firsthand despair, rejection, loneliness, poverty, bereavement, torture, and imprisonment. Christianity alone, among all the religions, teaches us that God became a man, and therefore he's uniquely acquainted with our difficulty. We do not serve a God who stands impervious to our suffering and difficulty. He is very much acquainted with and familiar with our grief, and our pain, and our hurts, as he has experienced everything we're going through. And so, our suffering, it has to drive us to Jesus. It drives you to him. That's what he wants it to do. He wants it to drive you to Jesus, so that you can, with James, as he says there in verse 5 of that chapter 1 that we looked at, he says, when you're going through trials, ask for wisdom. And who do we ask wisdom of? Jesus who the Proverbs tells us is the personification of wisdom. And so we run to Jesus. 
We run to Him and we cry out for wisdom. We cry out for comfort in the midst of our trials because He has it. It has to drive us to Jesus. A second thing is our suffering must drive us to the cross. For it was there that God proved that He can bring goodness out of the most terrible events. When you look at your life and everything seems like it's falling apart and you say, Lord, why do you allow me to suffer through so many trials? You can't possibly love me. But then we go to the cross and we go, you know what? You brought beauty from ashes. You brought the most amazing result out of the most horrendous of human events. The God of the universe was put to death on a cross. Jesus, our creator, was subjected to horrendous physical suffering. But more than that, God turned his back on him. God the Father rejected him as he poured out his wrath against sin upon his beloved son. You guys, this was a very real rejection. On the cross, Jesus went through more than just physical agony and torture and pain. It was beyond even the most human, the worst human suffering. He experienced rejection and pain that exceeds anything we've ever gone through. Maybe you've experienced the rejection of a friend or a spouse or a parent, but none of us, none of us can fathom what it would be like to lose not just spousal love or parental love that had lasted for several years, but the infinite love of the Father that Jesus had from all eternity. None of us can fathom that. On the cross, Jesus, whom God said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. On the cross, Jesus cried out in agony, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you just skim over that and you don't think about that, you won't feel the pain that Jesus was experiencing. This wasn't just something to say. This is something Jesus meant. He only said seven things from the cross. And he meant all of them. They weren't scripted. Jesus was a man. He is a man. And as God the Father was pouring out his wrath upon him, he felt loneliness and rejection and fear. And he cried out, My God, my God, why are you forsaking me? This is a deeply relational statement, you guys, that reveals the utter abandonment and rejection that Jesus felt upon the cross. Abandonment, maybe, that you've experienced, and so he can relate to you. Yet even in this, even in this, Jesus did not question God's love for him. For he uses the intimate term, my God, knowing that even in this horrendous act, God's love was being powerfully demonstrated. So when we look at the question, Why does the Lord allow us to suffer through so many trials and illnesses if he truly loves us? And we look at the cross of Jesus Christ. We aren't given specific answers for our personal suffering. But we do know that the answer cannot be, it can never be, that he doesn't love us. It can't be that he doesn't care or that he's removed from our condition. God takes our hurt and suffering so seriously that he was willing to take it upon himself. Therefore, if we embrace the Christian teaching that Jesus is God and that he suffered and died upon a cross, then we have comfort and strength to endure the most brutal realities of this life here on earth. We can be assured that he truly is Emmanuel, God 
with us, even in our worst sufferings, you guys. We run to Jesus. We run to the cross. And it's there that we may not find specific answers for our personal suffering. But it's there that we find comfort and endurance and strength to have the right perspective about the things that we're going through. You've been listening to Pastor Ryan Couch of Calvary Chapel, Crook County. For more information, you can write to us at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon, 97754. Thanks for listening, and God bless.